Hey, before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might be into. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mystery that is Russia with the help of those who know her best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former KGB spy. Join Global News Europe Bureau Chief Jeff Semple on a journey to find out how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying This Is Why. More than 30,000 potentially lethal doses of opioids have hit the streets in Ontario because of pharmacists who became drug dealers. That's just an example of one of the intriguing original reports done this past year by Global News reporters. The focus of this episode is to look back on 2018 to review some of the most intriguing reports released by Global News. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer, and this is Why. Global news reporters stay pretty busy throughout the year. Spring is supposed to be high time for the real estate market. They report on everything from politics to the environment to social issues all across Canada. These days, like about 150 other political fact of life that where Justin Trudeau goes in Metro Vancouver. RCMP officers across Genevieve was only Canada may be well known for its universal health care system, but that the memoir called Pippin in his own words is no longer available. So if you were to ask any reporter what they thought was the most interesting story in 2018, you'd probably get a real variety of responses, which, if you think about it, actually sounds like it would make for an intriguing conversation. Not what was the biggest news story of the year, but what was the most interesting news story in 2018? So I spoke with Carolyn Jarvis. My name is Carolyn Jarvis, and I'm the chief investigative correspondent with Global News based out of Toronto. I wanted to ask her, of all the stories that she worked on this past year, which ones did she find most intriguing? You know, stories that were maybe surprising or kind of struck a chord. And the first story that she shared with me, frankly, well, it surprised me too. 911 Old South, police, fire, paramedic. Yeah, hello. Hello? Need a paramedic, sir? Hello. I got robbed. You got robbed? Yeah. Where are you? At the IDA Pharmacy. IDA Pharmacy? IDA Reader Medical Pharmacy. Okay. What was what was taken? Everything. What was stolen? Narcotics. A 911 call from a pharmacy that was being robbed. Narcotics were stolen. However... All is not as it seems. The plan to rob the pharmacy was hatched by the pharmacist himself. Proof came in this phone call. Uh, I need your help. Secretly recorded days before the robbery. For what, let's see. 500, 600 patches, discrepancy. Can you send somebody to the pharmacy? Yeah, if you want me to. I have no choice. I will give him whatever I have in the uh, safe. We have to do it properly. 
and after he needs and everything. Carolyn, this investigation that you did into pharmacists dealing their own drugs, that's some pretty shocking stuff. It's not what you would expect. I mean, people expect that pharmacists are the trusted purveyors of licensed drugs that are tested and approved by the government uh, that you can use to make you feel better. But there's a very, very small, and I really need to be clear on that, a very, very small percentage of like a fraction of a percent of pharmacists who go wayward. And in the case of the opioid crisis, see that there is a profit to be made off the misery of others. And that's what happened in the investigation that we uncovered, where we found pharmacists in Canada who were dealing thousands each patches of, in this case, fentanyl, which is this high-potency opioid that even a you know, quarter of a fentanyl patch can kill you in certain cases. They were dealing this out the backsides of their pharmacies. And in, in two cases in particular, both in Ontario, interestingly enough, they went to extremes to cover up the fact that they were doing this. One pharmacist in London, Ontario, faked prescriptions for dead or dying people. We literally tracked down the grave sites of some of his, quote, patients to cover up the fact that he was funneling this fentanyl and other opioids out the back of his pharmacy. On the surface, the prescriptions looked so real. Powerful opioids dispensed by a trusted pharmacist, Yogesh Patel. But dig a little deeper and you'll discover that Brian Gill, who has dispensed 60 hydromorphone pills, is actually dead. So was Roy Lamour, who supposedly filled two prescriptions for that same opioid the very day he died. This man, Diru Druve, apparently needed 11 prescriptions for maximum strength fentanyl, and Yogesh Patel dispensed them, even though Druve doesn't exist. Herein lies the secret to Yogesh Patel's deception. Fake or dead patients, fake scripts, fake transfers to other stores. There was a lot of narcotics missing, unaccounted for. There was untold amounts of fentanyl. And yet neither Health Canada nor the province knew what was happening. His store was even inspected by the College of Pharmacists in the middle of the scam and passed. He was not on the radar at all. It wasn't until Woodstock police, conducting a separate investigation into a suspected drug dealer, spotted Patel meeting with him and pieced it together. In this case, I guess Mr. Patel doing meetings in public instead of into the pharmacy, that was his downfall. Patel would leave his pharmacy with a package, parked beside the suspected drug dealer who would get into his car and leave. A second pharmacist in the Ottawa area who trafficked nearly 5,000 high-strength, maximum-strength fentanyl patches faked a robbery at his own pharmacy to cover up the fact that he was trafficking these, these drugs. What did the person look like? He's like uh, five. I don't know. Yeah, he covered his face. So it was a male with a covered face? Do you think he's white or black? I don't know. He's maybe a br- brunette, maybe. Okay, what did his clothing look like? Hallo- Halloween, Halloween. Halloween face. Halloween. He had a Halloween mask? Yeah. Okay, what color were his clothes? Sir, you need to give me this info. The police are on the way. Uh, like a jacket, baby. Okay, well, I need to know what color. What color was his jacket? Black, maybe, or brown. Dark jacket? Which way did he go? He went through uh, Rideau Street. What is which way on Rideau? I don't know. And what we don't know is what happens on the back end. When thousands of fentanyl patches hit the street, we can only estimate that the impact is going to be devastating. But 
we're not there to see it, neither is the pharmacist who's just seeing the money in his pocket at the end of the day. Our investigation in partnership with the Toronto Star and the Ryerson School of Journalism has uncovered that over the past five years, more than 30,000 potentially lethal doses of opioids have hit the streets in Ontario because of pharmacists who became drug dealers. We expose the systems that failed and we bring you one more pharmacist who was caught on camera breaking the law. This is Shamik Patel, a small town pharmacist casually walking out of his Ontario pharmacy with a package. It's oxycodone, a powerful opioid. From the truck, an undercover police officer hands him cash, he slips it into his pocket, and the drug deal is done. York Regional Police pieced the case together after receiving a tip, but none of the safeguards put in place by the College of Pharmacists, the feds, nor the province caught this. The government of Ontario tracks every single opiate prescription. To ensure monitored drugs are dispensed appropriately, Ontario created the narcotics monitoring system six years ago. If a pharmacist is dispensing an extraordinary amount of fentanyl patches, the NMS should pick that up. But it didn't. It didn't catch Wasim Shaheen, a pharmacist who trafficked more than 5,000 fentanyl patches, nor did it catch Yogesh Patel another pharmacist who trafficked 3,000 fentanyl patches. Those data reside in some computer somewhere and someone should be able to say which pharmacies are dispensing the most. So under the Freedom of Information Act, Global News asked for that data and this is what we found. In the narcotics monitoring system, 17 pharmacists dispensed more than 10,000 maximum strength oxycodone pills each last year. Three other pharmacists dispensed well over a thousand maximum strength fentanyl patches and there's no indication the province looked into why this is happening. Today we could write a prescription for 200 fentanyl patches and if we find the right pharmacy to fill it, somebody would fill that and there'd be no flags on the system. The health minister wouldn't sit down with us for an interview but through a spokesperson said the narcotics monitoring system was not established to detect criminal activity. Even though the manual states the data could help reporting possible criminal conduct to law enforcement agencies. Since the Narcotic Safety Act was introduced in 2010 to reduce the abuse of monitored drugs, not a single person has been charged. But the federal government shares responsibility on this issue. Health Canada started inspecting pharmacies in 2015, but only hit 3% of Ontario stores last year. The way to catch pharmacists that are doing wrong might be to scrutinize deliveries to pharmacies. Somewhere in Canada, somebody keeps track of every single delivery of every controlled substance to every pharmacy in the country. You would think so, but it doesn't happen. Not in Canada. In the U.S., by contrast, drug distributors are required to report all suspicious deliveries. And when they don't, they can pay millions in settlements. Drug distributors in the U.S. are facing a lot of scrutiny about turning a blind eye to drug deliveries to pharmacies to just scream trafficking. It's a glaring loophole the federal government says it will fix with an amendment that will require suspicious deliveries be reported. No word, though, when it will come into effect. As for Shamik Patel, he pleaded guilty to trafficking and was sentenced to 30 months in jail. We should note the Ontario College of Pharmacists, which also does inspections, admits more needs to be done. So they'll begin reviewing narcotics prescriptions in greater detail. 
but not until next year. Carolyn Jarvis, Global News, Toronto. Coming up later in this episode. When we enter town, not only do we feel followed, but sometimes we are followed. And oftentimes people post things on websites to say, oh, that global girl's in town. Or, you know, watch out there. She's going to be asking questions. So you're listening to This Is Why, a national radio show and podcast from Global News. Download and subscribe online at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your favorite shows now. In this episode, we're speaking with Carolyn Jarvis. Now, she's the chief investigative correspondent with Global News, and she's done some pretty incredible investigative reports this year. So we're taking a look back and showcasing some of the highlights. The next story that I want to talk to you about is a story that you did on the pollution that comes from Canadian refineries. So often in Canada, we like to think of ourselves as better in many ways than our American counterparts, especially when it comes to taking care of our beloved environment. However, you found out through your investigative work that there is more pollution coming from Canadian refineries on average than U.S. refineries. And this was shocking data that, you know, even when I had a presentation in front of a team of environmental journalists about six months ago, and I said, you know, who do you think pollutes more, a Canadian refinery or American refinery? Everybody said, oh, for sure, America pollutes more at their yeah, refineries. of course. And that assumption was wrong. Uh, after we crunched through massive volumes of data, what we uncovered was that the majority of Canadian refineries, on average, polluted more than the average American refinery. This is the Marathon Oil Refinery in Detroit, Michigan. In 2014, it processed 121,000 barrels of oil a day. A little more than an hour's drive away in Sarnia, Ontario, is the Imperial Oil Refinery. The same year, it processed slightly less, 109,000 barrels a day. But here's what Imperial Oil produced more of. Pollution. Ten times more fine particulate matter, seven times more carbon monoxide, and 49 times, yes, 49 times more sulfur dioxide. Staggering numbers, crazy. And it's not just a one-off. In 2014, the co-op refinery complex in Regina produced three times as much benzene as two smaller refineries in Montana put together. The same year, the Parkland Burnaby Refinery in BC, then owned by Chevron, produced nine times more sulfur dioxide than this Washington state refinery, even though it processed less oil. What's been done about it is nothing, that's the problem. Government data exclusively obtained by Global News and analyzed in a joint investigation with the National Observer and Toronto Star shows not just a few, but a majority of Canadian refineries are emitting far more of some key pollutants compared to the U.S. average. Data from 1999 to 2015 that's never been shared with Canadians. It would be quite an embarrassment to Canada for this data to be made public. Imperial oil defense comparing refineries can be a flawed exercise, depending on the nature of processing, type of crude, and product. It also says it reduced SO2 emissions by 60% and fine particulate matter by 25% in the last 10 to 15 years. But on the whole, when you consider the U.S. has 10 times as many refineries as Canada, you would expect total emissions to be far greater in America. But that's not the case when it comes to sulfur dioxide. Canadian refineries pollute so much of it that in 2014, 15 Canadian plants put out 62% more SO2 
than 127 refineries in the U.S. SO2 really irritates the lungs. When the concentrations are high in ambient air, anybody with any sort of constrictive lung disease is going to respond to that SO2. To reach the U.S. midpoint, 11 out of 15 Canadian refineries would require a 50% or more reduction in nitrogen oxides. Nine out of 15 plants would have to do the same for carbon monoxide. In Sarnia, Ontario, home to three refineries, Jason Simon believes the pollution is enough to make his asthma flare up. I'm just breathing in all that crap. Simon says when he moved away to play in the NHL, his breathing improved. But when he returned, so did the asthma. For no reason at all, I'll have troubles breathing and I'll have to use an inhaler to open up my lungs. But Canadian refineries aren't breaking any federal laws. Canadian facilities you know, are in full compliance with their annual emission caps established by the relevant regulatory authority. That's because no federal cap exists, only a patchwork of provincial and municipal regulations. In 2001, Canadian politicians and stakeholders did try to come up with one. They came together to work toward convergence with the U.S. by 2015. But discussions went nowhere. Ten years after that, a second working group tried again. But a year later, there was an impasse at deadline. The problem was that some of the positions were simply too far apart. And so once again, Canada didn't regulate the industry. Someone has to tell them it's a priority now. It's like, yeah, do it. <laughs> From 2002 to 2016, Canadian refineries did reduce most key pollutants by 40 to 50 percent. But the U.S. has been even more aggressive cracking down hard on companies that don't comply with its federal Clean Air Act. Admittedly, on the convergence objective, you know, we haven't done so well. The Canadian Fuels Association says achieving convergence could simply cost too much. It's not a lot to ask to protect local communities from pollutants that harm their health. The federal government has drafted stricter regulations for one specific set of pollutants called volatile organic compounds, and it will affect refineries once introduced. But on the issue of having a cap on all refinery emissions, as has been discussed for years, Environment Canada simply skipped over our question. And another story you did this past year that also relates back to the environment is about the air pollution. What did you find out about the new data around air pollution in Sarnia, Ontario? There was concerns about air pollution and the fact that it was making people sick. And there was a commitment from the government to fund a health study to finally determine whether or not the pollution was what is making people sick or whether perhaps it was something else or just natural occurrences. It will be a multi-million dollar, multi-year study um, trying to get to the heart of whether or not uh, air pollution is causing ailments in this part of the province. And it's a very concerning issue for people who live there all the time who are at times inundated by noise pollution, odor pollution, uh, visual pollution and fumes that are toxic that may be entering their personal airspace. But to enrich that story, we found a new data set that talked about benzene that was coming off local plants, refineries and chemical manufacturers. It's a new requirement that says plants have to disclose publicly, at least a handful of them, how much benzene is reaching their property line. So at the edge of their property line where, where their land ends and public land starts, how much benzene, which is a cancer-causing chemical, how much of that is seeping into public airspace? And the numbers we found in certain cases were much higher than we would have expected or the public would have expected, sometimes 20 times higher than regulations uh, for a one-day period. Now, 
these weren't done over a year. These were two-week samples, so you know we still need more time to gather all the data. But the numbers we saw were certainly alarming. And the Ministry of the Environment, when they spoke with us on background, said to us the same thing, that these numbers are alarming and that they are addressing them directly. But what it shows is that one year after we exposed some very serious concerns about pollution and possible health connections in Sarnia, that the basis for those concerns, that, that toxic chemicals are potentially reaching people, still exists. You said that people were getting sick there. How were people falling ill? What kind of symptoms were they experiencing? It's a wide range. I mean, asthma is a very common thing you hear about in Sarnia, and more particularly in the Amjanang First Nation. Uh, breathing problems. If there's an acute event, people often complain about burning eyes and nausea and headaches if something's happening. Um, uh, even my cameraman, who I was working with over five days, who had asthma in his youth on the fifth day of shooting, said, Carolyn, i got to get out of here. Like, I can't breathe. Like, it's just so hard. I mean, the odors hit you as soon as you travel into the valley, where a lot of these odors seem to um, hang low in the air. But there are bigger concerns about cancer, leukemia in particular, which is linked to benzene, that one chemical we were zeroed in on. Um, Other people are worried about various other forms of cancer and what that might mean for their long-term health. And what was the public reaction after you released the story? I imagine that people must have been relieved that finally they were being acknowledged. These complaints that they've had were finally being heard. I would say it's mixed. Very few people want to speak ill of industry because industry is what's put what, what puts food on the table in this part of the province. This is what keeps the lights on in people's homes. And so you speak ill of industry and you stand to lose your job or you stand to be blackballed in your community. So um, those who are crusaders for the environment um, stood up and applauded our work. But uh, other people say, you know, if you're hurting industry, you're hurting jobs. So it's a very fine line to walk in this community. And even today when we go back, it's with mixed response that we come back into this community. A lot of people don't want us there. And sometimes when we enter town, not only do we feel followed, but sometimes we are followed. And oftentimes people post things on websites to say, oh, that global girl's in town or, you know, watch out there. She's going to be asking questions. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a tense community when it comes to issues around this topic. Carolyn, thanks for chatting and looking back on some of your best investigative work of this year. Well, that's very generous of you to take the time. Thank you so much, Nikki. To check out more of Carolyn's work from 2018 and to find out what she's up to in 2019, go to globalnews.ca. This is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and Nikki Reitmeyer. That's me. It's a national radio show and it's a podcast, so you can download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And of course, since it is a podcast, it's absolutely free. Give us a rating and a review while you're online. Tell your friends about the show as well. We're on Twitter at This Is Why. You can always send us an email too. This is why at curiouscast.ca. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.